0: Please pray with me. Father, we pray to that very end that you would indeed be our vision, our vision for life, our vision for our future. And we ask today that as we turn our attention to your word and we see Jesus more clearly, and he reveals himself more powerfully, that he would be glorified in that vision. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we approach this time of year, we recognize the wonderful aspects of the autumn season, the brisk air in the evening, the need to light the fireplace, the smell of the autumn air and the leaves changing colors. And for those of us with children, we also recognize the inevitable, that with autumn and the impending winter comes viruses snotty noses, and significant illness. And those little carrier monkeys that we call kids interact with all of those other carrier monkeys at their school or at their Sunday school or at Awana, and they bring all of other people's germs into your house. In fact, one of my little girls came up to me with a sweet tone looking for a loving embrace just the other day, and she pulled a trick on me that I fall for every single time. As... I knelt down to give her a hug, and she buried her head in my chest, and her face just started rubbing back and forth as violently as possible while she was wiping her nose on my shirt. She didn't really want a hug. She wanted a tissue, and I was the next best thing. You know that people try all kinds of things in an attempt of purification during this time of year. Of course, you wash your hands more. I was reading an article the other day of people spraying saline solution on their doorknobs in their house to try to kill all the germs and to purify, to purify. Of course, we know that over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years during our lifetime, certainly, that the the market for hand sanitizer has just completely exploded. That every year for the last eight years, that market rises by at least four to five percent, unless there's an Ebola outbreak in another part of the world, and then it jumps 10% or higher. And that the United States makes up 25% of the sales for hand sanitizer globally. Every year, Americans spend $200 million dollars on this product that is produced by just nine companies with under 300 employees total. And all of that starts to ramp up this time of year. All to purify. To get rid of disease. All for the sake of lasting health. Well, that idea of purification points us to our text Today, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you are new with us today, you are stepping into the early parts of a series in John 1 through 7 that we're calling Life Giver. That Jesus is the one who gives life. And as we see up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced with all of these wonderful phrases of the light and the darkness and the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he has the role of pointing people to this Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, as the chosen one of the Father. And as people are getting to see him, They are believing in Him, and as they believe in Him, they are given life, new life in His name. A life that they've never had before, and could never have by any other means other than Him. And now, as we turn our attention to John chapter 2, we see that more and more people are starting to see Him, to experience Him, and to believe in Him. And so, pick it up with me at John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus says this, or it says this about Jesus. It says, And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. In John chapter 2, we see the beginning of a sequence of events, a sequence of miracles, of signs that Jesus performs in the presence of small groups of people. And each sign finds its significance in multiple ways. Not only is there significance in, in what the miracle itself actually is, but there's also significance in what the miracle points to. And in this account we see, as we read the story, a handful of things stick out. Now if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this story dozens of times. Maybe it's even tired to you at this point. If you're a new Christian... Or just becoming familiar with the Bible, maybe it's fresh or a little bit confusing. But either way, look at it closely and afresh with me. Jesus is invited to a wedding with some of his disciples. His mother is there. And almost all of the details about what's happening at the wedding fade into the background. We don't know who the bride is or the groom is. We don't know where it is really or what's happening. We don't even know how Jesus is related to these people, if he is at all. But there are some peculiar details that begin to come to the fore. Really three types of details. The first is Jesus' interaction with his mother. The second is the detail regarding the jars used in the miracle. There's almost no details in the story of physical things except for those jars. What's the deal with that? And thirdly, the detailed words of the master of the feast. And so that's what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. But before we do, we must consider the simple fact of this miracle itself. The wedding feast of the ancient world could last up to a whole week in length. You think your wedding reception was expensive? Try having all your friends and family hang out at your house for a week. And you're responsible to feed them. They would come from the region and a basic problem arises. They run out of wine. And Jesus' mother, Mary, somehow decides to get involved and she seeks Jesus out to fix the problem and he performs this tremendous miracle. He turns water into wine. Only God can do that. Only God can turn water into wine. Only God can take the details of a material substance and change them physically into something else, only God. And we see that in this story, at its most basic level, he provides more richly and abundantly than any other could provide, and his glory is on display for the few who saw it. They were told, these disciples, they were told that they would see greater things if they followed Jesus. And now, almost immediately, they're starting to see greater things. All pointing to the greatest thing that was to come. And as a result, you see in verse 11, for those who were up close and saw this personally, verse 11, this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And seeing his glory, they believed. But the question remains that if his glory is displayed not just in the fact that he provided miraculously, but also in what he provides, the question is what does this Jesus really provide? And the answer is it's not just wine. Jesus provides purification. Jesus is the great purifier. And to see this, we look at the first tension point of the story. Mary comes, he approaches him with the problem, and the answer is what most mothers do not want to hear from their children. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now to use the phrase woman is probably not as maybe offensive or derogatory as it would be to our Western ears. Remember, Jesus did not sin. (laughs) He is not sinning in calling her woman. However, it's not a term that's commonly used from sons in talking to their mothers. Jesus is rebuking her. And he's rebuking her because... As he says, his hour has not yet come. What hour is that? Well, when you look throughout the rest of the gospel, you see that this hour that he's referring to is a very specific time. He's referring to the hour of his death in which he will become the sacrifice to purify people from their sins. Purification. Let me read a couple examples. It's littered this hour. The idea of this hour is littered throughout the Gospel of John. It says in John 7.30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And In the very next chapter, John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Or John 12.27, Jesus himself says, now my soul is troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Or John 12, 23 and 24, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so this hour that Jesus is talking about from the very beginning is the hour appointed by God and even protected by God in which Jesus, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, as we've seen already, becomes the appointed sacrifice for purification of sins. How do we know he's speaking of purification instead of just more generally the time of his death? And resurrection well we look at the story despite rebuking his mother it's interesting to note that he does exactly what she asks him to do <laughs> we could say a lot about the fact that Jesus rebuke of Mary is a sign of his allegiance to the plan of his father over the human will and desires of his mother and his family There's a lot to be said about that in the Gospels. We could say a lot about Mary's simple response of faith, that even in the midst of rebuke, she simply says to the servants, just do what he tells you to do. He'll take care of it. But what's most interesting is that in how he does this miracle, we see in verses 6 and 7 this description of the jars. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He had them grab the jars, but they weren't drinking jars. Now, if they had been using the drinking crockery for the last number of days at the wedding feast, it stands to reason that there are a number of empty ones sitting around. But he doesn't have them grab those and fill them up. He doesn't have the jars that are clean and honorable and used for this sort of thing to be filled up. He has them grab the jars that are used for ritual cleansing. on the Jewish law, there's a lot of different forms of ritual cleansing. And it doesn't tell us which type of cleansing these jars were for, but it doesn't really matter. Because by emptying the jars for another purpose, it becomes plain that now anybody who wanted to be ritually cleansed at the wedding was unable to do so according to the law. Because Jesus was there. And the water for ritual cleansing was replaced by the wine of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, You will no longer need these jars anymore for cleansing because I'm replacing the purification rituals with a purification that only comes from my hour and comes from my blood. And you see this idea littered throughout the New Testament. John the gospel writer writes about this in 1 john chapter 1 verse 7 he says this but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us all from sin or hebrews chapter 9 the author speaking about the nature of purification and he says how much more will the blood of christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god Or in the incredible vision of worship in Revelation chapter 7, it says this. It says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So Jesus has his servants fill the purification jars all the way up to the brim. There's no room left for the ritual purification anymore. All of them have been fulfilled by the purification that Jesus himself would offer on the cross. He is the great purifier. The glory of Jesus is shown in what he provides and how he provides it. And friends, that is good news. That is good news because when you sin, there are times when the blatant nature of your transgression and the weight of conviction and the consequences that you are enduring because of your sin simply leave you feeling filthy and guilty and depressed You know the feeling I'm talking about. You've been there. You know when you made that mistake or when you made that choice or where you now are in this habit and pattern of living that the overwhelming weight and burden of of filth and guilt and depression overcomes you, but there's one who can purify you. This is good news for those of you who are perfectionists. In some ways, perfectionists seek a self-righteous position either knowingly or unknowingly because of their drive to be and to do things perfectly. But even perfectionists fail. And when perfectionists do fail, their pain is often magnified all the more. We know that despite perfectionistic tendencies, there's only one who's perfect. We know despite the desire for purity, there's only one who is truly pure his name is Jesus, and he's able to purify you. Bobby Moore was the captain of the England National Soccer Team when they won the World Cup in 1966. He was the one who received the trophy from Queen Elizabeth. And an interviewer asked him later to describe how he felt in that moment. And he talked about how terrified he was terrified as he approached Her Majesty because he looked upon her and saw that she was wearing white gloves. And his hands were muddied from the football pitch that he was playing on. And so you can see pictures as a triumphant captain walks toward the balcony. He's wiping his hand on his shorts the whole way up there, and as he approaches the box that the queen sat in, he wipes his hand across the velvet lining in attempt, all in an attempt to get the dirt off himself and to become clean before her. This causes Von Roberts to comment, "If Bobby Moore was worried about approaching the queen with his muddy hands, how much more horrified?" should we be at the prospect of approaching God? Because our sin, we are not just dirty on the outside, but our hearts are unclean. And because God doesn't just wear white gloves, he is absolutely pure through and through. But my friends, there's a purifier. Jesus provides purification. And that's what he's showing his disciples here. That the glory of Jesus is shown in what he provides and how he provides it. And we see in this story a second way that Jesus provides. We see that not only is Jesus the perfect purifier, but we see that Jesus is also the true bridegroom. Think about it with me. Another surprising element of this story is found in the response of the master of the feast. The servants take a taste test of this new wine to him and he responds and says to the bridegroom, everyone serves a good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. And so we pause And we say, but that's not what really happened. The steward turns to the bridegroom and says that, but the bridegroom didn't supply the wine. (laughs) Jesus supplied the wine. So why does he tell us that? Well, who's supposed to supply the wine? The bridegroom. The bridegroom is supposed to supply the wine for the feast. And in the first week of his marriage... He's already failed at one of the most basic pieces of being a bridegroom and providing for his family. And at this, I see a number of ladies in the room giggling. Why are you giggling, ladies? Because all husbands fail, yes. But Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, provides. And despite the fact that he's not the bridegroom in the story, it's interesting to note that he takes one of the crucial roles of the bridegroom and provides for all of those who would be there. When you realize that, you begin to think of all the accounts in the Bible which Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. It's one of the common descriptions of Jesus that other people attribute to him and that he attributes to himself. It's immediate in its its nature, but it's eternal truly in its focus. John chapter 3, John the Baptist is there on the scene still. He's having more and more people gather around him. He's getting more and more fame, but he points to the bridegroom. (laughs) He says in verses 29 and 30, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, namely me, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In Matthew chapter 9, the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples don't fast? And Jesus describes to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then... They will fast. Or Ephesians chapter 5, the great image of husbands and wives and Jesus and the church, brides and bridegrooms. And it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her or purify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Or Revelation chapter 19, the picture of eternity. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine white linen, bright and pure. So you start to see how these things connect, right? The hour of Jesus' sacrifice, the purification that he offers, the nature of the bridegroom. And in the immediate, you say to yourself, well, this miracle, Jesus shows himself as God. He does something that only the powerful God can do. He changes the material substance of water and turns it into wine. And in the intermediate, you say, Jesus shows himself as the true purifier, something that only a pure and sacrificial God can do. And in the eternal, Jesus shows himself as the perfect bridegroom he becomes something that we all want something we long for something that only a pure and sacrificial and eternal God can do as he unites his people to himself for all eternity friends Jesus the glory of Jesus is shown in what he provides and how he provides it A couple was married for 15 years when they went through a difficult patch in their marriage. They were having more disagreements than usual. And so they wanted to make their marriage work, and they agreed on an idea that the wife had. For one month, they planned to drop a slip in the fault box. I do not recommend this. The boxes would provide a place to let each other know about daily irritations that they would have toward each other, and the wife was diligent in her efforts and her approach. Leaving the jelly top off the jar, wet towels on the shower floor, dirty socks not in the hamper, and on and on until the end of the month. And after dinner on the last day of the month, they exchanged boxes And the husband sat down and he read the slips and he reflected on what he had done wrong. And the wife opened her box and began reading. And they were all the same. All the slips had one message on them. They simply said, I love you. The Son of God forgives our sins as a faultless bridegroom with a bride who is impure and imperfect but he makes her pure by forgiving them. He makes you pure by forgiving you because he loves you. And for those who saw this, it says in verse 11, he manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. And so the question for you is just simply, do you believe in him as well? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you draw near to us and make yourself known. And that your son Jesus in such magnificent form enacts a parable before the eyes of the people there and even before our eyes, 2,000 years removed, that we might see his glory and believe. Thank you that we can see more carefully the nature of purification. That as we think about our own lives and the... And the weight of guilt and sin and filth that comes from my thoughts and my actions and my words, some intentional, some unintentional, the habits and patterns of my life, we proclaim so clearly and blatantly, we need to be purified. And you provide such purification through Jesus who loves us. And so we worship him. Amen. Amen.